You're listening to another episode of the Resilience Project podcast. I'm your host, Katie Bachmeyer. What does self-care mean to you? Listen to this conversation with Ailea, whose role is to offer self-care techniques to families who have experienced trauma. And as she walks alongside them, as they explore what their gifts are and connect to the community, she gives them different ways to practice self-care at home so that they can build resilience. Let's, let's talk about what a peer support partner is. Tell me what that is. So a peer support partner is someone with lived experience who supports someone else who's going through that experience. Mm-hmm. So in my case, um, I do not have a child with a disability. Most of the peer support partners do in our agency. Um, my boss hired me because I have a trauma history. And with this project, there was going to be a lot of people with trauma. And because I have that lived experience, I can talk about the things that we do to get better. You know, I can sit across from someone and say, I go to therapy and it's the best thing I've ever done for myself. You know, these are the self-care things that I do. And it's not a professional telling them, you need to do this, this, and this and go down the list. It's someone who has the lived experience saying, this is what I did to be better. Mm-hmm. And that seems to fit many of our parents that we serve. So the the idea behind um, the peer support partner, you said, is to support families who have experienced trauma as somebody yourself who has also experienced trauma. Is that, mm-hmm. is that right? Yes. Okay. So as a peer support partner, you are, you are taking parts of your story mm-hmm. and you are sharing that with the families you're supporting? As appropriate. You know, you don't just come in and... Oh, Here's my whole story because they're not my therapist, right? Um, But if you hear something and there's space for it, you kind of get a feel for, you know, they would feel better if they understood that I've been there. And so you have to filter. You have to ask yourself the question, is what I'm saying for their benefit or is it my benefit? And it always needs to be about their benefit. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I judge what parts of my story and how much to share is how will this help that person? And I need to be able to kind of clearly define that in my mind before I share my story with them. That must take a lot of, of self-awareness in that moment to know whether or not, okay, this is a thought that I'm having. I really want to share it. Now, am I wanting to share it because I want to tell part of my story to release part of my story or feel connected in some ways? Or am I sharing this story because I want them to hear that I'm empathizing? Yes. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say I do it perfectly all the time because I don't. Um, but that's that's the goal. That's the benchmark that we try to meet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the goal is to help families grow resilience, right? Mm-hmm. What ways do you begin? How do you start? Well, going in to meet a family for the first time, you're kind of like going in cold and it's, it's a little bit nerve wracking. Mostly we start with rapport building, just, you know, here's a little bit about me. Tell me a little bit about you. You know, I don't go in with a file ever. Most of the time I have no even, no idea even like what their child's diagnosis is. I know nothing. And I come in with kind of a, a blank slate, a fresh look. It's like, okay, your child is not a diagnosis. You know, your family is not a case plan. You know, what do you need? What is your story? Um, Some people are more comfortable sharing than others. Um, So we use some interventions like um, 
sometimes I'll do a collage. I'll bring magazines and we'll do a collage and just as a kind of a get to know you, like these are some things that I would like to share with you about me. You know, what would you like to share about you? And that seems to be a good way to kind of break the ice, mm -hmm. start to get to know them. And as you build that relationship, you know, you learn more and more of their story and what they really need. Mm -hmm. What point are the families when you enter into their lives? At what point are you entering their story? Most of the people referred to the Resilience Project are at pretty tough points. You know, they've got tons of the behaviors with my air quotes because we don't use the B word like that. But, you know, that... Tell me more about why. Because behaviors are communication. Mm -hmm. And we try to shift it from this child is being bad to get attention or to manipulate or, you know, whatever the reason is to this child is trying to draw attention to something and to kind of start shifting that mindset around to, you know, it's, it's an inconvenient thing for all of the adults in the room. But what is the child trying to communicate? And that's a tough mental shift. It takes a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems like there's um, a part of that, too, that when you're stepping into a story and you're seeing, um, you're seeing a family in such a tough place mm -hmm. that you're you're beginning to see not not only the child's way of communicating that something's going on but possibly even knowing that the family or the parent um, has something going on as well yes how do you approach that very very carefully yeah. very carefully you know oftentimes we kind of have a respectful guess around that you know the more time you spend with the family you start to see the warning signs, you see the red flags, you see the little bits that they tend to hide. Um, and especially as a peer support, I often go into people's homes, so I see a little bit more. Um, so I might like kind of offer a, a opening in the conversation that if they want to share a little bit more, they can. Mm -hmm. um, I try not to ask a whole lot of questions around those things because I also don't want to make them so uncomfortable that I'm not welcome in their space mm -hmm. um it's just very you have to be very sensitive and, and this is all part of you stepping in like maybe even day one um i am here to build trust i'm here to find a way in so that i can support this family yeah and that looks a little different for each family too it's sometimes you go in and they are just over the moon that somebody's there to help um, other times it, it just feels really intrusive. There's another person who wants to come into my house and be in my business. Mm -hmm. um, and many of you know the parents or caregivers are older also. So sometimes I think I have that age barrier. I look a little young for my age. So um, they kind of think, okay, who's this kid? Like, <laughs> is she going to come tell me what to do? I, I do the things. I've tried the things. And there's, there's that frustration there of, what else could you possibly tell me? I have tried everything anyone has ever told me. Um, so just taking the time to sit with them instead of trying to give things right away can be really important. Can we go back to the, the intrusiveness mm -hmm. of it? Sure. Families often want privacy. Absolutely. At every mm -hmm. family. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, especially families who are going through something tough that they they don't want the rest of the world to know about. So mm -hmm. do, you, do you think there's an answer to that? Do you think that you're, you are not being intrusive 
Or is there an element of your work that requires you to be intrusive? And if that's the case, where, where do you justify that? I think that for people involved in the systems like this, they have a lot of intrusiveness in their life. They, they're required to talk to the SSA, the Service and Support Administrator, the Developmental Disability Department. Um, they're required to you know, maybe talk to a caseworker or you know, if CPS is involved, you know, they don't get to tell them no. So they experience that a lot. So adding another person on can feel like pretty big. Um, so I try to give people options. And instead of saying, okay, I'm going to come to your house on this day at this time, you know, I schedule what works for you. Do you feel more comfortable if I meet in your home or out in the community? And I just give them a lot of options. Um, I have one family who's let me know they want to see me once a month. That's okay. My normal schedule is once a week. But for them, that's what they need to feel safe and confident in the relationship. And slowly over time, we're seeing that relationship develop. And, you know, at first they would not let me come to their home. They wanted to meet me out in the community. And it's not because there was something that they wanted to hide. It's a beautiful home, you know, but they needed to get to know me a little bit before they could say, yes, you're welcome here. And that's that's kind of how... I do it. I just, I take the time, whatever time they need, and try to give them as many options as possible. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you you have a different style or um, framework of operating in than perhaps other system workers have in the past, Mm -hmm. that you have that flexibility and that your top priority is relation, relational, is that right? Yes. Is it relationship? It is. And and no one has a requirement to see me. And that, that's one of the things that can be really important. You know, I support one mom right now that CPS is involved. She has no choices to tell anybody no, except for me. And so every time I see her, I remind her that I'm someone that she can say no to. Because she needs to say no to somebody sometimes. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's definitely relational. You know, nothing that we do is required. Um, but essentially, like, I've become, for many of the families, an external support. You know, if it's I'm a safe person to pick up the phone and call. Something happens, you're super frustrated, pick up the phone and call me. That's great. That's what I'm here for. Mm-hmm. And so we're teaching them that there are safe people, even within the systems framework. And I think that's been pretty important for some of our families. As a safe person, are you um, encouraging the families then to also look outward for other safe people beyond the system? It is. Community involvement is very important. And that's the sustainable piece, right? Like after all the systems people go home, who do you call? And it's, it's also one of the hardest pieces to implement. Um, I had one family I supported. They went to a particular place um, every other Friday, and their son was the, uh, was the greeter there. And so we talked about going and Their doing... son with a developmental disability? Uh-huh. He, yeah. Okay, a greeter as in like a just... Like a, for a restaurant, okay. which was fantastic for him. But we talked about adding in... Um, they do uh, dancing classes on one of the days during the week, and we went a couple times, and the mom just finally told me, she's like, you know, this is a lot of fun, but I'm tired. <laughs> I'm really tired. I was like, you know what, thanks for letting me know, because I'm not going to make you do this thing if you're not, if it's not adding value for you. And so it's just it's a matter of kind of 
weighing that out because yes, you want them to have community connections, but it's also pretty scary for some of our folks. Mm-hmm. Why do you think, let's flesh that out. What's scary about community for somebody who's experienced trauma? Well, I mean, when you're talking about intergenerational trauma, often there are a lot of secrets. These are things that we just don't tell everyone else. You know, so-and-so might have hit me last night or, you know, maybe there is a sexual assault, but I just don't talk about that. And it's, it's very common in the families that I serve. And I think that there is an element of isolation in that, where if we, it's easier to keep the secret if I'm isolated. But if I sit and talk and build a relationship with someone, those secrets, they tend to, to seep out. So it's vulnerability. Absolutely. And trust. Yeah. It's a challenge. And I think it's a challenge for everyone. And, you know, some of our parents have transportation. Some of them don't. And, you know, there are challenges around that kind of thing. But um, the best part, I think, and, and it takes a while to build this. I'm, I'm thinking of one mom in particular right now that she is we've spent like a year and a half in the project together now and we've really explored her gifts and talents and passions along with all of the things that have happened in the meantime like all the crises that she needs to talk out and things like that and yeah she would have told you that she's not artistic she doesn't have an artistic bone in her body but you know what that woman loves the scrapbook She's really good at it. So we recently found a card making class and she is going to come to this card making class and it's going to be a great community for her. Mm-hmm. And I think she's really going to connect there and it's, it's exciting to see, mm-hmm. but it took so much time because she never took time to find out what she liked. Mm-hmm. She had no idea what she liked or what she was good at. So taking the time to explore that with her, yeah, it took a while. But it's now paying off and that she's going to find a community where she fits. Mm-hmm. When you can focus in on somebody's strengths and their gifts and they can start to recognize those in themselves enough to then want to seek out other people who share those gifts and strengths, it seems like that is an ultimate result. And so what are the little other pieces along the way in that story that you would say helped carry that through? Yeah, we did a lot of art. We did a lot of weird art, and I would I would come in and I would say, okay, I had a wild idea. Are you willing to try it? <laughs> and she would laugh at me, and she would say, yeah, I'll try anything once. <laughs> so, so, yeah, we just tried a lot of different things. Um, and I, I do this with a, a lot of the people that I work with. Obviously, art is something that I love to do. Not good at it. You don't have to be good at it to enjoy it, though. So it was, it was providing an opportunity to experience things with nothing attached to it. You can love it. You can hate it. I don't care. You just tell me. And along the way, you know, she found things that really fit. She loves her art journal. And her favorite part is she'll draw like the body mandala mm-hmm. intervention. So this is a little, a little person inside of a circle. And you put your emotions on that person. And... When she gets frustrated, she'll tell me, she's like, I drew my little person. I drew him. And then I was so upset that I scribbled all over with red. And when my pen ran out, I hung up on my the person I was talking to. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know what? That is a great intervention. Like, yeah. she's personalized it. Uh, with other families, it's, gosh, I've painted with people. Um, I have, you know, worked with clay with people. 
usually do a collage at least once with a family to just kind of get a feel for what lights them up, what gives them joy, what tells their story. And then if we get into like the really like the serotonin releasing, you know, we, we do like a sugar scrub. Um, and I love doing that one. It can be really emotional for people though. For some of the people I serve, that might be the only positive safe touch that they receive that week. Tell me about sugar scrubs. What are they? So you take coconut oil and sugar and the essential oil of your choice and you mix them together. And usually what we do when we do them with, with a family member is if we've got multiple family members, we'll have them do it with each other. But if it's one-on-one, we'll, we'll do it with them if it's okay with them. And as we rub it into their hands, we will tell them something we appreciate about them. And then we ask them to do the same thing for us. And so there's, it's great. I love doing those kinds of things because it's like, no, I'm relaxed too. <laughs> and we just had this wonderful relaxing thing together and and then we'll leave whatever we've made in a little container there so when they're having a rough time they can go ahead and pull out their sugar scrub and it can trigger that memory Mm -hmm. and they can just kind of take a moment to take a deep breath Mm -hmm. in that way the power dynamic that i think is common in um maybe a therapy role the situation you just described is much more of on the same level is that kind of Yes, that, you, yeah. that would be the goal, okay. is, is there not never to be a power struggle or a power dynamic. I think, I feel like it's probably there, but we try to lessen its impact as much as possible. Because again, I'm going in as a peer, not as a provider, I'm a peer. And as a peer, we are on the same level. Mm-hmm. I'm not above you or you're not above me. Mm-hmm. And as a peer, how does that affect you? You have gone through, you said, your own trauma history. So Mm -hmm. how are you providing support in those moments when it's hard? Since I have my own trauma history, I'm really good at compartmentalizing. Sometimes I leave and I exercise my phone a friend because it's been a really tough session. Sometimes it's very triggering. You know, some families can be tougher than others depending on what kind of trauma is in their history. You know, if it's like mine, it's more likely to be triggering for me. And I just have to be aware of that. So, you know, I have a couple friends that I can call at any time. And sometimes I exercise the right to not have any more appointments that day. If I know that there is a tense situation and I might not be okay afterwards, I just don't see anyone. I don't schedule anyone. And that's okay. I'm finding, though, that it's happening less. The more I get into the role and the more I go through therapy, it's, it's just happening less. And that's, that's a really wonderful thing. So There's the sugar scrub, there's the body mandala, there's yoga and mm-hmm. all different types of ways to, to care for ourselves. How do, yeah. you, how do you personalize that? Well, I tell everyone that I go to therapy. I'm, I, I have a mission in life to help normalize seeking mental health treatment. So everybody knows that I see, they all know that I go see a therapist um, there are a couple of people that I've explained in a little more detail because I feel like it would really benefit, but I can't recommend a treatment that's outside of my role, but I can tell people what helped me. One mom who, as it turns out, like she's like this fabulous artist and she just hasn't done it in years. So instead of saying, Hey, go try this yoga thing. She's like, Hey, let's do, just do your art. Like, how do we carve out time? to do the thing that I know lights you up. Um, you know, there have been others that I've been like, yoga, man, I will go to a class with you. It would be amazing. <laughs> that would be so much fun. And then you get to do it together and experience that together. Because sometimes going to that first class by yourself is really scary. 
Yeah, it's really scary, especially yeah. if you have no idea what you're doing. Like those bendy people, I can't do that. We will do a, a whiff instead of a yeah. you do this. It's like, let's do this together. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how do you piece out this close, this close relationship, this mm-hmm. close bond that you're building with somebody, helping them develop a self-care routine, helping them connect um, with their son or daughter, and at the end of it, where is that relationship? Yeah, it, it is a struggle. Um, and I think the key here, though, is reciprocity. So in a friendship, if I need something, I'm going to call you, but if you need something, you're going to call me. And, and that is the difference between having a friendship and having the, the peer relationship because they don't meet my needs. If I need a need met, I need to go somewhere else. So do I genuinely care about every single person I see? Absolutely, I care about them a lot. But then at the end, there has to be the boundary. It's hard because both parties come to genuinely care for each other. Mm-hmm. But I try to, for myself, I kind of frame it like, in like that Mother Teresa frame, and I'm gonna probably butcher the quote, but something along the lines of like, you love the person in front of you, and then you go to the next person and you love the person in front of you. So it's hard for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it's got to be hard for the for the families who have mm-hmm. built this relationship. Yes. So how do you help that transition? We've had one person leave the project. And I just had a really frank conversation with her. And, and I've started to have the conversation like, this is difficult. I would miss you. And it's okay. But what did we learn from each other? What are we taking away from the relationship? And really focus on the gifts that we gave each other during our time together. And maybe to make something together so they have something concrete if they don't already. I mean, like the one mom that likes the scrapbook, we've made pages together. So, you know, if there is a need to, to end the relationship completely, you know, she can open her scrapbook. And we made that page together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess there could be a risk in saying that you are the end point, that you are the goal, that right. somehow your relationship was what mattered most. And Yes. And, and that, that is why the community piece is so important. That's why the building their gifts and talents and, you know, helping them use their voice and advocate for themselves. And because everything I do with them needs to be in service of building the resilience. So identifying the resilience, I think, is really the key part of how did you build this. You know, it's not too long ago, one of the moms called me and she's like, I was so anxious and upset. And she started going down the list of all the things that she did to help calm herself that she learned from me. So even when the relationship ends, those things aren't going to go away. She has skills and she uses them very effectively. So, yeah. I think that the most important thing for any of the people in this project, whether it's the parents or the siblings or the focused child, is that they're valuable, you know, that they're not defined by the things that have happened to them, that people can love and accept them just the way they are. And it's great that they want to work on getting better, but they're really, really amazing people and the trust that they extend is amazing it's amazing so so if you were to say something to the children of the families that you've gotten to know it's that they're valuable yes 
Do you think that that is a message that the families needed to hear, the parents needed to hear themselves? Is that a reassurance that that you were able to offer the families? I think for some of them, yes. Sometimes they're so frustrated, they have a hard time seeing their gifts. And opening up possibly the the parents' gifts to themselves Mm -hmm. is the first step in being able to realize their child's gifts as well. It is. After so much frustration and feeling stuck. And, and I borrow the, the airplane thing. You have to put your oxygen mask on first before you can help your child with theirs. Because many of these parents are just, they were exhausted. They're just exhausted. They feel like they don't have a whole lot more to give. And so focusing on things that don't seem that important, it's kind of, I think, discombobulating for them at first. They're like, you want me to do what? A sugar scrub? Like, why? why? This is, I thought you were going to teach me interventions. And it's like, but that's what this is. If we can teach you to fill your bucket, even if it's just a little bit at a time, because you're not going to get a week off. You're a parent. That's not how it works. So if we just teach you, what can you do if you have 30 seconds? You can just take a deep breath. You know, what can you do if you have five minutes? You can listen to your favorite song. You know, what can you do if you have 10 minutes? Wow, what if, what if they're all at school and you've got four hours? What can you do for yourself to fill your bucket and, and, you know, make sure that you have something to give. And, and that's really kind of, I think, the most important part of what I do in the families is just it's okay for you to take care of you. Many of them spend their entire lives taking care of someone else. So how do you help someone put a little bit back in so they have an abundant heart to give out of? That's beautiful, Ailea. Thank you so much. I think what's so powerful about the work you're doing is that it is a small piece of this larger picture of a family's life, of a community, of the global time we're living in. But the small piece that you are part of is so human. Um, it's so human and we can all connect with it and we all um, we all can learn from it. So thank you so much. Thank you, Kate. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check out the show notes for more links and resources.